what if this happens? What if I meet someone like this? What if there is a global pandemic? You know, there are a lot of what ifs that it might be nice to know the answer to in the event that it actually does happen. I had this idea that maybe people who dealt with scary fiction, so things like horror movies, for example, or people who are morbidly curious, just generally, they might be dealing with the pandemic better because they've sort of rehearsed maybe not specific, maybe specific pandemic situations through you know, movies or through books or whatever, but also they've learned how to just sit with uncertainty and sit with anxiety uh, a bit more than someone who doesn't watch horror movies. You know, if you, if you watch a lot of horror movies, you learn how to sort of wrangle your anxiety and, and channel it into something fun, right? You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. I recorded this show two years ago, but with Halloween right around the corner, it seemed too good not to bring it back. In the intervening time, my guest, Colton Scrivener, has earned his PhD and is now a behavioral scientist at the Recreational Fear Lab at Aarhus University in Denmark and a research project manager at Arizona State University. He investigates the evolutionary and psychological underpinnings of our fascination with the darker side of life, including horror, true crime, and all types of scary play. In my house, there's a whole category of film, supposed entertainment like horror, creepy violent flicks that we call not a Lynn movie. My sons learned this early enough and my husband has had to adjust his pandemic viewing habits accordingly. Maybe my imagination is too vivid. Maybe I'm just a wimp, but I can't unsee that stuff. It keeps me up at night. I just, I just can't. Just ask my dad about the time he took me to see True Grit when I was eight. And yet, when we think of all the ways we regularly characterize our curiosity, idle, genuine, it doesn't take long before morbid comes up. And if I stay in my not a Lynn movie mindset and just walk on by, you and I would miss out on what Colton Scrivener has to offer. Colton is a PhD student at the Department of Comparative Human Development and a fellow at the Institute for Mind and Biology at the University of Chicago. His research focuses on the psychology of morbid curiosity. As it turns out, there are not a lot of people doing serious research in this area, and he didn't know that was where he was headed, except that his particular interest in cognitive paradoxes seemed to point in that direction. As part of his research, Colton has developed a morbid curiosity scale that he uses to predict behavior. It's a very straightforward, you do it online by responding to a series of prompts. Would you want to watch an execution? How about a head transplant? An exorcism? Want to learn about the occult? Now, given what I've told you, like me, you might reasonably have predicted that I would have a very low score on this scale. But you and I would be wrong. It turns out, with the notable exception of violence, I'm actually above the mean in all categories. Not by a huge amount. Mind you, 
but enough more to get my attention. And I definitely wanted to know more. One of the things I have most appreciated about these conversations, about research, theory, and all the ways curiosity shows up in work and life is that they make me see the world differently. So welcome, Colton, and thanks for making me stop and think. <laughs> Thank you, Len, for having me on. Oh, it's very fun. So, okay, we have to start first with define morbid curiosity. That's harder than you think it might be. Um, that's one of the first things that I had to do because, as you mentioned, there aren't a lot of people studying this, at least in psychology. And so it's been a lot of work to try to define it in a way that you know can be operationalized for other researchers and used in, in broad contexts. Uh, but the way that I've been defining it has been uh, an interest in things or situations that might be threatening or dangerous. So morbid curiosity, not so much just we like horror films, but it's actually got it's got advantages to us in our lives and approach to our futures. Right. I mean, you know, if you if you can know something about the dangerous parts of your world, that those are dangerous people or uh, dangerous situations or whatever it might be, uh, you're better equipped to to handle them if they happen. You're better equipped to avoid them because you know something about you know what makes them occur and where they might be found and how situation might unfold. And so if you can learn something about it without really having to experience it, I think it can help you be prepared for when it does happen. I think it was actually a line in one of your columns in Psychology Today. Congratulations, by the way, on having a series there. That's very cool. (laughs) Where you were kind of defining morbid curiosity. And and you, you have this line about the best way to avoid the consequences of a threat is not to simply avoid it. And that was the sentence that there it is right there. That was the hook that pulled me into this because I thought I'm kind of avoiding this topic because I think I'm not going <laughs> to like it. That's not a good strategy generally, but it made me also think of the work of Lily Fitzgibbon at the University of Reading um, who looks at counterfactual curiosity, mm-hmm. kind of the same thing about helping to sort of rehearse our response to potential threats. Do you see that connection? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the work on counterfactual curiosity informs some of the stuff that I'm doing with morbid mm, curiosity yeah. because, you know, it's a, well, what if, right? What if this happens? What if I meet someone like this? What if there is a global pandemic? You know, there are a lot of what ifs that uh, it might be nice to know the answer to in the event that it actually does happen. So you actually did some research on the what if there's a global <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> talk talk about that. Yeah. So when the pandemic uh, really started taking off around, I think it was around April of 2020, uh, some colleagues and I got together and thought that it would be, you know, a lot of our other lab studies were put on hold because we couldn't bring participants in and do human subjects research in the lab. And so we had to move a lot of our stuff online which has been a hassle for a lot of researchers. As it turns out, it actually ended up being a good thing for me in some ways because I then had this situation that was this dangerous novel scenario where I could study how people reacted to it. And so we had this idea that maybe people who dealt with scary fiction, so things like horror movies, for example, or people who are morbidly curious, just generally, they might be dealing with the pandemic better because 
they've sort of rehearsed maybe not specific maybe specific pandemic situations through you know, movies or through books or whatever but also they've learned how to just sit with uncertainty and sit with anxiety uh, a bit more than someone who doesn't watch horror movies you know if you if you watch a lot of horror movies you learn how to sort of wrangle your anxiety and, <laughs> and channel it into something fun right or at least something that doesn't you know put you completely out of your element and so we ran this study where we asked people it was a very simple study we just asked them you know how much of a fan they were of different genres of movies so whether it was romance or action or uh, thrillers or horror movies and we asked some specific subgenres too things like pandemic movies or zombie movies and then they took the morbid curiosity scale that you had mentioned and then we created this new scale as a way to measure how resilient people were feeling towards the pandemic so there there are lots of you know, resilient scales out there and a lot of them are very good but they're very good for single time point things so think disasters like a hurricane or a tornado or a flood or some kind of school shooting or terrorist attack or something that happens at one point in time. And they weren't particularly good at capturing resilience to things that were ongoing and happening over a long period of time, like the pandemic had been and still is. Uh, and so we kind of you know, we created our own scale for pandemic resilience. We validated it. And we found that people who did engage with specifically with horror movies and who were morbidly curious were feeling less distressed during the pandemic. So they didn't have the sort of physical signs of stress, like, you know, sleeplessness or feeling depressed or feeling stressed out. And they also were feeling more positive resilience. So things like, you know, finding something interesting about the pandemic, even if they, they obviously didn't like it, right. But they were, it was kind of interesting to them, kind of not fun, but an, an, a new experience for them to try to understand. And we, we found that these effects, you know, even if we controlled for uh, something like the Big Five personality, which I'm sure you've talked about before with some curiosity researchers. Uh, even if you control for things like extroversion or openness to experience or agreeableness or neuroticism, controlling for all of these things didn't matter. It's still still found that people who watched a lot of horror movies at least reported that they were feeling more resilient towards the pandemic. Which to me is fascinating. Now yes. I did not go and like watch Contagion because I thought I can't, I can't do that. Like I'm living this. I can't do that. But I did read a whole lot of books about past plagues and development of vaccinations. And right. it did, it did trigger an interest in a category of reading and information that I might not otherwise have pursued. Yeah. I mean, it suddenly became important, right? Right. You know, it suddenly became, you know, not just important, but also interesting. You know, if it's not, humans are, all, all animals are motivated by motivation. So it can't just be, you know, can't just be important sometimes. It helps if it's interesting. It helps us kind of approach the topic and learn more about it. I really liked what was described in something that I read of yours or about you about this interest in cognitive paradox because there is this tension, right? And we, we, we balance that tension in every moment of every day, sometimes in very consistent ways and sometimes in very inconsistent ways. So how does that take shape in this context? Yeah, I think most people want to steer clear of danger, right? So if you see something that's dangerous or hear about something that's dangerous, one impulse is to say, oh, I should avoid that right? I, that's bad for me. It's bad for my health. It's bad for my life, whatever. The impulse is kind of to avoid that. 
But the other impulse, which I think is sort of this is morbid curiosity in the way that I've been defining it, is to learn something about that right. because it's bad for you, because it's dangerous for you. And obviously it's not very helpful to learn about something dangerous if you have to be up close and personal with it because then you're just exposing yourself to it, right? I mean, that, that is one way to learn about it, but it's maybe not the best way. A better way to learn about it would be to read about it or to have someone else tell you about it or to maybe experience it from a distance in some way. And so I think that's the tension that I was interested in is how do people navigate you know, something that's dangerous or maybe gross? How do they learn about those kinds of things if they want to avoid them? Right. But you also had some research, and this was another place where I really, I tell you, like left, right, and center, I was stopping and thinking and reassessing all sorts of stuff <laughs> because of your research. So really, kudos. It was very cool. You have done some work about and found a negative correlation between the use of horror media and cold-heartedness, mm-hmm. which, you know, for a kind of violent, averse person like myself who's like really cannot, I just can't do horror movies at all. They Mm -hmm. just completely get under my skin. So I made this equation in my head, sort of all of this stuff as being bad, but you have this negative correlation about engaging in this form of media and cold heartedness. Talk about that. Yeah. So I think that came so I, I actually, I didn't do a study specifically on that, but I had the data. And the reason that I got interested in looking at that data was that there was a new Saw movie that came out recently, right? A very sort of gory um, horror film. And, and a new you know, installment came out uh, in the past few months. And there was a, a film critic, and I don't remember who, who he was or who he was writing for, but it was like a relatively big newspaper. And uh, anyways, he had written about people who are fans of this genre being depraved lunatics and that kind of, you know, I think wow. is a stigma that's attached to people who do enjoy those kinds of movies. And to be fair, you know, if you don't enjoy something like Saw, I could maybe understand why you think someone who did would be like a little weird or maybe cold hearted. Right. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't know if he was right or not. My, my own personal experience made me think, eh, I don't, I don't think that's true. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Colton Scrivener. Just in time for Halloween, we're talking about morbid curiosity. And then I had remembered that I had had done a study where I was just kind of trying to see what personality variables were related to morbid curiosity, just as a way to better understand conceptually what it might be, right? Or even if it's its own thing, like maybe it's just a conglomeration of other personality traits. And so I ran this study where people took a lot of different personality questionnaires, and they also took the morbid curiosity scale. And one of those personality questionnaires that I included was um, a psychopathy scale. The actual acronym escapes me now, but it's uh, Scott Lilienfeld's psychopathy scale. And it has a lot of subcomponents to it. And one of those subcomponents is cold heartedness. So this is sort of the opposite of compassion in many ways. And so based on this film critic's description of what he thought Saw fans were, it seemed like cold heartedness kind of fit that category, right? And so, and I didn't know, I honestly didn't know, I couldn't remember, because it wasn't the focus of the study, I couldn't remember how cold heartedness related to morbid curiosity, if at all. And so I kind of went back to that paper and I looked in the table 
And I saw, you know, not only was there not a positive relationship, but there was kind of a slight negative relationship. And so that's what I ended up, I think it was a Psychology Today post where I sort of responded to that, uh, that claim and basically argued that, you know, maybe, but there's not really evidence for that. You know, there's not really, um, there's a little bit of evidence that people who watch horror movies are a bit lower in empathy. And I think that I also talked about in this post that empathy is maybe not the best gauge of how caring someone is in some ways. You right. can be very empathetic and be a very bad person to some people. In fact, some of the worst people are really empathetic, uh, you know, to people that are close to them and very unempathetic to other people. It's a very parochial kind of approach to caring. Whereas something like compassion, I think is more, is broader, um, can apply to more people. And so it's, it's, I was curious, I didn't have any measures on compassion, but I had a measure on something like it's opposite. And so I looked at that, but I, you know, I think it's, it's worth looking into, but I was just kind of shocked at the way that this film critic had, had, uh, cast you know all fans of these movies to be like and had a small piece of evidence that maybe that wasn't the case maybe that wasn't so true after all so describe the morbid curiosity scale and and how how do you hope to use it or how do you hope other people might use it well i i had no intentions of ever making a scale you know i guess of any kind but i had uh you know, when I started looking into morbid curiosity as a psychological uh, construct, there wasn't really a scale, you know, there wasn't a way to measure it. And in psychology, a quick and easy way to sort of get a proxy for someone's trait level of anything is to have a a good scale for it. And so that was kind of the first big project I did was, okay, well, I need to find a way to measure this, uh, or at least get, you know, an approximation of it. And so I started, you know, I put together a huge list of items that, that encapsulated what I thought people were talking about when they talked about morbid curiosity, because it uh-huh. can mean a lot of different things. Right. So, so when I started out, I actually started out thinking, okay, maybe it has to do with uh, violence and ghosts, violence and paranormal, because those are kind of the things people talk about when they talk about this, this topic. And so I'd run a couple of small studies using a scale that was built around those two things. And the scale didn't tie together very well. So when you look at the statistics of it, the scale just didn't, it, some of it tied together. And then there were some items that just didn't fit with other items. You know, people didn't answer them in the same way as they answered other items. So I added in a few more items, you know, some stuff that was kind of about disgust. So some body violation kind of stuff. And that sort of formed its own subunit, but there were still some things that were uh, not grouping together. And I think, I think the last one I added was maybe the minds of dangerous people. So the true crime aspect and that sort of formed its own unit so what i ended up with were these four units so there was minds of dangerous people so sort of learning about people people's motivations to do bad things and then there was another unit that's related but, but different on violence which is not so much learning about their motivations but learning about uh what violent situations look like you know what what starts them how do they end um what kinds of people are involved and then there was a third subunit uh on body violations which is kind of the outcome this violent altercation sometimes, sometimes, but it's more about learning, you know, what are the consequences of something bad happening to you uh, or someone else, or what are the limits of the body, right? If you have an injury, how bad is it really? What does it look like to have this kind of injury? And then there was a fourth subunit on, I think I originally called it supernatural, but then I started digging into the, the etymology of supernatural versus paranormal. I think paranormal is a little broader. So uh, paranormal, which has to do with dangers that are 
kind of hard to explain or hard to gain access to. And maybe you're outside of your control in many ways. So things like ghosts or maybe even aspects of religion, uh, deities, um, or the occult or witches. And so these four things, you know, group together in their own way, but they also were related to one another kind of on a higher level. So eventually I had this sort of cohesive scale and then I started measuring it against behaviors. And I started measuring it against other personality traits to see if other personality traits could just explain this away. Things like maybe disgust sensitivity. So if you're very sensitive mm. to disgusting material, mm-hmm. maybe that's really what this is. But as it turns out, it really wasn't that related. You know, it was, it was, it was a slight negative relationship. So if you're high in disgust sensitivity, you're a bit lower in morbid curiosity. But it didn't explain a lot of the variation, you know, within the scale. Um, or things like psychopathy, you know, like the film critic would have suggested probably. Right. Explained some of it, but really the subunit of psychopathy that explained it was rebellious nonconformity. So people who are just anti-conformist or who seek out things maybe that their society says is bad for them, right? But it wasn't so much the things like cold-heartedness that predicted it. And then I had to create a behavior task to try to see if I could predict behavior with it because that's kind of the ultimate goal, right? So I created this computerized task where people would see two images that would just flash in front of them very briefly. And I think it was maybe half a second each and they both flashed at the same time. And then I would have them press, you know, press A if you would like to see the image on the left for longer or press, you know, L if you would like to see the image on the right. And so the idea was that, you know, one of the images would be morbid and one of the images would be very similar, but not morbid. And so that was, that was half of the task was these flashing images. The second half of the task, it just had two descriptions, very brief. And so one, one of them was, uh, you know, press this button to see a picture of a man who saved his friend from drowning. And its alternative was press this button to see a picture of a man who killed his girlfriend and ate her. And in that case, it's, it's good to know, I guess, what like a virtuous person looks like who would uh-huh. save you from drowning. Uh, but it's maybe also important to know what a cannibal boyfriend looks like. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, the idea was to see would people, would, would scores on the morbid curiosity scale predict, uh, at least to some extent, the items that people were choosing to be curious about. And I think that the, I don't remember the exact correlation, but it's very high, especially for psychology. I think it was something like, like half of the variation, so half of the choices could be predicted, which is really high for a single scale Yeah. Um, in psychology. Uh, but yeah, so things like that. I have some other... Uh, behavior tests that are kind of on hold until um, the pandemic stuff dies down a little bit and we can start doing more in-person, more in-person experiments. But yeah, just trying to see if, you know, does this scale not only tell us something important about maybe human psychology, but also about human behavior, right? And how people actually act and how they behave. In that spirit, are there morbid curiosity practices that either you use or that you think the rest of the world would benefit from using i think you know in in this and this is maybe true outside of just morbid stuff but i think it's good to i think it's good to get outside of your comfort zone a little bit and you know not not be afraid to be curious about something just because it seems scary or bad or immoral or whatever it might be Uh, and i think but i think that that's true of curiosity more broadly you know i think that Morbid things kind of give us a push away, but curious people, I think, still find themselves often looking into it, maybe like yourself, even if you don't realize that you might be curious about this kind of thing, you know, people might surprise themselves a little bit. 
Yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely. That certainly was certainly true for me. Yeah. So before I let you go, speaking of surprising ourselves, are you game for my big jar of wannabe analogies? Let's do it. Okay. All right. So I have this literal big jar uh, with slips of paper. I'm going to take out one for you, one for me, one for the audience. We're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these. So mine is light switch. Yours is peanut butter. Ooh, light switch would have been easier. <laughs> and I have one for the audience. So do you want you want to go first or you want me to go first? Uh, why don't you go first? Okay. So mine is light switch. Um I'm gonna I'm gonna actually try to avoid sort of what seems like an obvious thing and talk about light switch as a connection to power hmm. because it's a place where we intersect with a source of power and we can choose to turn it on or off. And I think we should recognize it as the source of power the way we do a light switch. Hmm. That's how curiosity is like a light switch. How is curiosity like peanut butter? I think curiosity might be like peanut butter in the sense that there is a traditional conception of you know, what it means to be curious. What does it mean to uh, be a curious person? And that's kind of, you know, your, your regular creamy or crunchy peanut butter. <laughs> um, but there are a lot of uh, nut-based butters out there now. And I think that even though some of them sound a little weird, maybe almond butter or cashew butter sound a little weird, uh, it's maybe not a bad idea to see what they're actually like before you make a hard judgment about them. Very nice. I like that. I like that. And as somebody who used to eat a lot of peanut butter and now can't, I'll just put in a good plug for almond butter. So <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. An audience, yours is tarp. How is curiosity like a tarp? Let me know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Colton, this has been a lot of fun. And I, you know, my sons will be very eager to hear my, uh, my reframed mindset <laughs> on some of these things. So thank you for that as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a, a very fun chat. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thanks for joining us here today. You can find all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious, where you can share your TARP analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Colton Scrivener. Check out links to his work and that morbid curiosity scale on my website. Let me know how you score. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Nervous Wisp by Cloud Cover via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. <laughs>